Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 614 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. A lot of eyes on the markets, folks. Uh, whether it's your 401k, whether you have uh, individual investments in individual stocks, uh, a lot of people concerned about a dramatic dip both on Thursday and on Friday. Of course, the stock market is in record territory and has been climbing steadily uh, for the past couple of years. A lot of people saying a correction is definitely overdue. Uh, here to talk about just that is Sanford Kahn. He is the author of Economic Trends Analyst. Uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, he's an economic trends analyst. He is the author of The Rebellion of a Rogue Raged Economist. Uh, the Rebellion of a Rogue Raged Economist. Uh, I like, I like that title. Uh, Mr. Kahn, thank you for joining us. Oh, I have a pleasure being here. All right. What are your thoughts? I mean, the two-day loss, nearly 1,400 points. Mm-hmm. You're an expert. What, what should we make of this? Well, thank you for, first of all, calling me an expert. Uh, what to make of it? It was down at the low Thursday, when it closed uh, down Thursday, rallied Friday. You had a, a 7.5% correction in the S&P 500. That's normal in a bull market. And then Friday, you had a rally <coughs> excuse me, that carried it up. And it carried it above one point above the 200-day moving average on the S&P 500. If it stays above the 200-day moving average, it's just a normal correction in a bull market. So if people want to panic on a 7.5% correction, you're panicking for nothing because this is just a normal correction. And it could be a very good buying opportunity, especially for dividend-paying, good dividend-paying stocks. And there's some that are paying close to 4% now, uh, between 3.5%, well-known companies and uh matter of fact, I'll be buying if it stays above the 200-day moving average come Monday. That's right. going to be an important day. Um, have you seen anything about the futures markets or, or just you know the Asian markets? What are you hearing about that in terms of you know, looking uh, well, ahead to Monday? Well, the futures markets in the United States will start Sunday. Uh, I'll probably look at it. But just because, let's say the future markets uh, are showing a down, that doesn't mean it's going to open down unless it's a real strong down. So just see how it opens Monday and wait, uh, how it opens is not how it closes because a good percentage of the activity is done on the last hour of trading. So just look, keep it simple. Just keep it really simple. That's the best thing I could uh, tell your audience. Keep it simple means so far this is a normal correction in an ongoing bull market. All right. And look at the 200-day moving average, which Friday closed at on the S&P 500, 2766. The S&P closed at 2767, one point above the 200-day moving average. If it stays above the 200-day moving average, all is well. You could sleep good, and you'll be well. So just look at that. That's what I'm looking at. Well, we are chatting with Sanford Kahn. He is the author of The Rebellion of a Rogue-Raged Economist. 
Uh, in terms of uh, the factors cited for, for the dip, uh, among them rising interest rates, concerns about a trade war with China, perhaps uh, some concerns about the volatility within the Trump administration, none of those things are going away anytime right. soon. Is there, are, and, and there are a lot of very smart people that I have talked to about this who, who say a, a major correction uh, – and and you know a major downturn is probably in, inevitable that, that basically the entire markets are are overvalued. I mean, do you agree with that? Yes, I agree with it. But you know, it's just it's like saying, well, eventually it's going to rain. Well, it will <laughs> rain, uh, but I don't know when. Of course, it just rained here in Southern California today. But still, uh, yes, if the Fed keeps raising interest rates longer and higher, and I think that's a concern with some people in the market now. They may do it longer and higher then most people expect, yes, we have a credit bubble in the United States, a debt bubble, if you want to call it. Uh, assets have been popped up on an abundance of cheap credit. When the credit is no longer cheap anymore or is getting more expensive, well, guess what's going to happen? What goes up comes down. And that's both real estate and stocks, too. But I'm not saying the stock market's in a bear market yet because – I need proof, and there's right. no proof just yet. It's in a correction right now, and that's all it is. Uh, let me ask you about the, the credit issue, because I have seen and, and read articles that, that suggest just that, that, that what the mortgage crisis was to the 2008 collapse, the credit market could be, and the fact that so many of us are burdened with so much debt, yes. that that is the same thing potentially for a major downturn. Is that what you're saying? Well, in 2007-8, it was a little bit different. They had liar loans. You don't have that now. The banks, uh, to their credit, have been very careful about who they lend to. But we still have a debt bubble, especially on the corporate side and on the government side. The government is sucking money out of the credit markets to finance their huge budget deficits. Actually, their credit needs in this new fiscal year which started October 1, net credit needs is going to be over a trillion dollars. They're going to suck a lot of money out. This is the federal government you're talking about. This is the federal government, not counting states and municipalities. So when you suck a lot of money out, there's not going to be too much left over for the rest of the economy. So guess what? Interest rates probably have to go up. But you brought up a good point, the trade war. It's not a looming trade war. We are in a trade war with China that is getting worse, not better. And I don't. And I think the markets are looking at that now. They thought it was going to get better, but it's not going to get better. And so you have a trade war and tariffs are being imposed on almost all the Chinese imports into the U.S. Well, that raises the price of the imports. If it raises the price of the imports, well, thank you, around Christmas time, we'll have to thank Donald Trump for that. <laughs> uh, that's going to be reflected eventually in the Consumer Price Index. If it's reflected in the Consumer Price Index, that means the Federal Reserve is going to look at that going up uh, faster and higher than they originally thought. They're going to have to raise interest rates higher and longer than they originally thought. You see how it's a closed loop. Right. It doesn't exist in isolation. And I think the markets are starting to get worried about that. And certainly in, in where we live here in Minnesota, many farmers are also struggling. Uh, right. We're certainly one of the biggest states for soybean production and so, soybean farming. And those prices have collapsed because of the, the tariffs that uh, China has imposed. So it's – that's certainly not helping anything from, from that the farming perspective as well. Uh, yet, I guess one of the things, uh, and certainly the 
president has taken credit for the economy, uh, the fact that you know the unemployment rate is down so dramatically. D- does that continue to fuel uh, long-term growth potentially in some of these markets? Well, the, if the unemployment is way down, but it's all been due to uh, an abundance of cheap capital, as long as incomes keep growing. So, you know, the unemployment was down before the last recession. Unemployment's usually down before every recession, even before the Great Depression in 1929, 1930. Unemployment was low. So, you know... This is how it begins. Something will happen that will cause the credit bubble to uh, burst. All bubbles burst. They just don't go sideways. They all burst, and something happens. The most logical thing to happen is that interest rates go up and the bubble bursts because people can't afford the credit anymore, and you get defaults. Uh, Here's an interesting statistic. Um, I sometimes call them sadistics. (laughs) But... uh, over 50% of the loans to both corporate and municipalities in the United States, not to the federal government, but to both corporate and municipalities in the United States are rated junk or one notch above junk. In 2007, right before the major recession, about 27% of those loans were rated junk or one notch above junk. So you got the credit bubble is far weaker now than it was in 2007. So it it bursts, and it's also bigger. Well, there's going to be dramatic effects, like to the downside. And so I'm telling people, stay liquid. If you want to be in the market, stay with good-paying dividend stocks. And if you want ultra-safety, ultra-ultra-safety, just stick with three- or six-month treasury bills. You'll get your money no matter what. You won't get rich, but you'll get around 25 2 to 3.25%, state income tax-free. But you'll be liquid, and he could take advantage of opportunities. So you're saying treasuries might be the way to go. I mean, what, what if somebody does have their money in stocks through either a 401k, yes. uh, you know, or perhaps they have individual accounts? What is your advice to them? I mean, well, as I say in my book, if you want to be in the stock market, because I follow this myself, there's a group of stocks. They're called 50 of them. Actually, there's 54 now, called the dividend aristocrats. That's one of the. Uh, postings in my book. Uh, these are stocks that have paid continuous dividends for last, at least the last 25 years. Not only that, for at least the last 25 years, they've increased the dividend every year, and many of them for well over 25 years. So if you want to be in the stock market, stick with the dividend aristocrats. Yes, in a bear market, the, these stocks will probably go down, but at least you'll be getting cash, and that's important. You'll be paid own the stock, and you could even price average it and buy more of it as it goes down. That's kind of scary to do when it's going down, but markets do turn around and go up. Even in the Great Depression, you know, the Great Depression stocks bottomed in 1932 and then started to go up. Meanwhile, the economy was still in the Depression, but they did bottom. So I'm just saying, if you stick with good dividend-paying stocks listed in the dividend aristocrats. All right, and that's in your book. Uh, we're t- chatting with Sanford Kahn. His book is The Rebellion of a Rogue-Raged Economist. So in your book, you list the 54 st- stock aristocrats, as you I, call them? I define what they are, and I give them the uh, URL or the web address to do it. Uh, if they want to get the book, if you can't remember the title, just put my name into Amazon, Sanford Kahn, K-A-H-N, and it'll pop up. But I explain, just stick with them. I also tell them about the Buffett Indicator, 
And that Buffett indicator was flashing that something was going to happen to the market. It basically is named after Warren Buffett. It's total market capitalization to GDP. And it got up to the absolute record, absolute record set in the first quarter of 2000. And guess what? Right on time, the market went down. So oh. that's also listed in the book. I tell them how to look uh, where the URL or the web address for the Buffett indicator and uh, look at it. If, if it gets up to 148.5% again, guess what? The market will probably run into trouble again. Uh, we're chatting with Sanford Kahn. Uh, Mr. Kahn and folks, if you want to look, look up his book, again, the title is uh, The Rebellion of a Rogue-Raged Economist, or he suggested uh, putting his name into a uh, search engine at Amazon, uh, Sanford Kahn, uh, K-A-H-N. Uh, can you give me one example of the f- one of the 54 stock aristocrats that, that have you know, continuously paid out these dividends over yeah, these I'll years? Give you, uh, everybody, I'll give you an example. Now, I've got to give a disclaimer. I own this stock, okay. so I've I got to be upfront with you. I own it, and I'll probably be buying more of it. You would think a lot of utilities would be in the dividend aristocrats. Obviously, they're big paying dividends. They pay dividends, a lot of them. They also increase it. No, there's only one utility stock, major utility, uh, electric gas, in the United States that is part of the dividend aristocrats. And it's one you would not expect. It's Consolidated Edison of New York. Wow, okay. Con Ed. Yeah, Con Ed. Good old Con Ed. Symbol is E-D, just Ed. (laughs) Okay. Really? Yep, that's fascinating. It. Look it up, and it's a very well managed utility. That doesn't mean things can't go wrong in the future. I'm just saying, as of right now, they're part of. They are the only major utility, electric gas utility in the dividend aristocrats. Fascinating. Okay, well, I think that that's uh, a good tease there for your books. I think a lot of people will be yeah. interested in, in in finding out that because I you wouldn't expect that sort of the last company that you would think of. A utility company, you know, generating those kinds of dividends. Here's something else. If we have a minute or two, what I also do, and this is for a little bit more sophisticated investors. Not only is Con Ed uh, the only utility in the dividend aristocrats, it has call options against it. So you could buy the stock and sell out of the money call options. It gives people the right to buy the stock for, from you at a certain price, but not the obligation, just the right. You could pick up some extra premium. And that just boosts your rate of return. That's if you're into that type of strategy. And some of your listeners may be, or they may want to learn about it. Right. Well, and I think I think you know, things have obviously been going extremely well, and people's you know 401ks are probably looking pretty good as well. Yeah. And and certainly the stock market has gone up you know so astronomically. But I think you get sort of the kind of dip that yeah. we've seen the past couple of days, and and it makes people a little yeah. nervous. But I, I really appreciate your time, and I, no great problem. term, dividend aristocrats. Uh, <laughs> again, Sanford Khan, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem, Esme. All right. Bye, Bye now. All right, folks. Uh, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. we got a lot going on this Saturday, as I told you. Um, coming up, we're going to talk with a neurologist uh, with Alina Health about uh, this this really frightening disease that has hit – uh, the, the nation. We have six cases, at least six cases here in um, uh, the U.S. or in Minnesota, excuse me. Uh, it's a polio-like disorder and it's on the rise. And we're going to talk to Dr. Jesse Corey from Alina Health about exactly what this is and, and what it does and, and what perhaps the treatments are and, and why is it happening. Uh, maybe he will have some answers for us. And then uh, coming up in the seven o'clock hour, we'll have uh, Dean Phillips 
the Democratic nominee for the third congressional district. So keep it here, News Radio 830 WCCO. In a few minutes, we'll give you the weather. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, folks. Well, I'm sure you have heard about this rare polio-like illness that is on the rise. Six children in Minnesota have been affected. Uh, it is called acute flaccid myelitis, AFM. And joining us now to talk about it is Dr. Jesse Corey. He is a neurologist with Alina Health. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, first of all, Dr. Corey, what can you explain sort of in, in layperson's terms, what mm-hmm. exactly is this or, or what do you know about this? Okay. Uh, right now, we're still learning a lot about this virus. But like you said, it's a, a cousin of the, of the polio virus in the same kind of family. This virus seems to affect the part of the spinal cord that controls movement. So if you think of the spinal cord, uh, kind of like a target. In the center target is where the, the nerves that control uh, muscle movement are on the outside, the sensory ones. This one atta- uh, attacks more at center, more that target area that affects the nerves that control movement and motor function. And where did it come from? I mean, it, suddenly it's, you know, here in Minnesota, it's in some other states. Uh, it's not widespread, but it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah, the, the first known case of this came in 2012 in California, it looks like. And then it's progressed further uh, east than that, from that point on, and it's right now in 16 or 17 states. What it seems to be is there seems to be a virus, uh, an enterovirus D68, that has been found in some, but not all, of these cases that may be uh, the causes. And this, this um, enterovirus D68, like I said, is a cousin of the, of the polio virus. All right. And is there, I mean, how do people get it? So it typically these are the kind of viruses that cause you know kind of cold symptoms. So you know folks will get this during you know the cold and flu season. So they'll have you know problems with you know cough and sneezes and running noses and and sometimes GI disturbance. And this oftentimes for most people you know they have this disorder and it comes and goes. For some people though, it, unfortunately, this virus will continue to do harm to the body. In the case of children, typically, who are affected with this flaccid myelitis, it may invade the spinal cord, those neurons that cause um, our movement, the the neurons that help us control our movement and control uh, how our limbs work. Okay, and and what is the prognosis for these kids that that have gotten this? I mean, are they going to recover? What's the treatment? Right now, unfortunately, a lot of it is unknown. When we look at how kids have done, there's been one good report that's kind of pulled three different studies and looked how kids did uh, four months, six months, and a year out. At four months, kids were really, you know, affected. These are the children we're worried about that were, who had, you know, definite limb weakness, may have required a ventilator. These children, you know, about 85% of them still had some kind of, um, some kind of weakness, some sort of, you know, disability from this. At a year's time, that improved to around 70%. So still a majority of those kids. But, the, you know, the thing to keep in mind is that 
the number of children affected are very small. It's about an right. order of one in a million. So um, if you're that unfortunate person, if you get affected by this, it's going to be a long road recovery, and nobody knows how well you'll recover you know, going into adulthood. Right. Okay. Because, I mean, that that's the one thing. And, you know, I remember, you know, talking to my mother and, and grandmother about, you know, the, the polio scares and how, you know, kids didn't go out and it was yeah. terrifying. And, and the um, results were lifelong in yeah. terms of my, my, the consequences. My, my aunt had polio. And so she's, you know, she recovered quite well. But, you know, she's now, in, as she gets into her 60s and 70s, she's having some of that, uh, that you know, post-polio disorder where people, you know, tend to have, um, you know, weakness a little bit more than what you expect for a person of their age. Okay, so so most of these these children are recovering. And now, have adults been getting it too? You know, in the cases that have been confirmed um, for this, you know, flaccid paralysis, uh, there's only been about, I think, six cases that were in and people above the age of 21. So largely staying in the juvenile precinct, the same with children mainly, but there have been a couple of cases in folks uh, a little bit at or, or a little bit older than 21 years of age. Okay. Um, and are, are these people, have they been vaccinated? You know, that's, that's a great question. You know, when the studies have been done, have looked at, are there, you know, commonalities between patients who've had this disorder? And unfortunately, they're not finding a lot other than they're predominantly young people. There have been cases of people who've been, you know, vaccinated, who've been unvaccinated, people who've been immunocompromised, because they may have received an organ transplant, and people who were not immunocompromised. So there's really not a pattern that we can identify yet. This tenant says this person's at higher risk than that person. Okay, so so some of the people have been, some of the kids have been vaccinated, and some of them haven't. Correct. Wow. Okay. Uh, and obviously the vaccine. Let me, let, me, let me clarify though that the vaccinations are. Your typical normal run-of-the-mill vaccinations, so measles, mump, rubella, you know, your flu vaccinations, the typical ones we have. Unfortunately, for this particular disorder right now, since we don't have, a, we're not 100% sure it's this enterovirus E68, we think it might be. There's a number of cases that have had this, but not all of them that have been confirmed have had this virus. We don't have a, a vaccination yet for this particular right, disease right. process. Yeah. Right. Okay, but but that that's that's... Really scary that that you can't find any commonalities. You can't say all oh, this, you know, th- these people were all you know pretty sick beforehand, and then their their yeah. immune systems were compromised, and so th- they were more yeah. susceptible. I mean, you, you're you're getting kids that are perfectly healthy that are, in some cases that are correct down with this. Correct. Yes, correct. Wow. Now, is it contagious? It does not appear to be so. I mean, when we look at th- this thing, there doesn't appear to be like clusters. I mean, we see some states where they're like in Minnesota, we've had, uh, I believe, six cases now of this, but there doesn't appear to be, you know, where there's a cluster where a family's getting it or all kids in a classroom getting it. So uh, that does not appear to be the case at this time. Okay. So so it doesn't appear to be contagious because I know that, um, you know, there are questions about like if you're, you know, pregnant or if you, you, know, you are immune compromised, should yeah. you go around these people or you know, the, these victims and, and how are they, I mean, are I mean, they being... Quar- I think if people are looking for... I think if people are looking for what can they do to make sure that they're taking the highest precautions, I think the it's just common sense right now. So wash your hands, probably the first and foremost thing. Um, when you you know if you if you, you shake hands, you know you sneeze, what have you, make sure you wash your hands, you know frequently. Uh, another thing is make sure you, you sneeze properly. I mean, we should you know when you sneeze, try to do it into your your elbow, try to do it, into it where you're not going to be spreading germs to other people. And I think just you know, common sense measures at this time 
appear to be the, the surest way to uh, mitigate your risk. And, and in terms of these, you know, children in the in the hospital, most of them are, are when they're hospitalized, are they being sort of quarantined or are they sort of with the general population? Well, you know, looking at this, there have been some cases where they've been quarantined, but um, looking at the literature, unfortunately right now there's not a lot of data as far as how they're being managed in each individual uh, institution. So right now it appears that, you know, from the literature we have, that there's no need to, you know, isolate these children, you know, uh, from other people. Okay. And and so when somebody, you know, exhibits, you know, comes in and, and has these symptoms, what can you do for them? Okay. So the, the first thing is, you know, we look at this you know, disorder, you know, typically this will start off with a, like, said, like a cold-like syndrome. Persons will have sneezing, running nose, maybe a GI disturbance. This, this syndrome, this plastic paralysis, we see oftentimes about seven days after the onset of that, you know, cold-like symptoms. And what we're seeing in those people there is, you know, weakness, usually in an arm. It's, it's a little bit odd in that it starts typically upper extremities in most of the cases where you'll see an arm weakness. And not, not both arms, usually one arm. And then it'll extend to potentially the other arm or to the legs. Oftentimes as well, we're seeing that the, the nerves that affect the face and the eyes, those cranial nerves, the ones that help us, you know, move our eyes, help us swallow, et cetera, those may be affected as well. And so when people start noticing, you know, golly, my arm's getting weak, my, I'm having a hard time swallowing, you know, the first thing, you know, I think most people would be concerned about would be a stroke, in which case definitely you want to get yourself to the hospital as soon as, as soon as possible so that uh, physicians can evaluate you to see, you know, are you right. falling into the stroke camp or just something else? Right. And and I, I, this may be a dumb question here, but children can get strokes too, right? Absolutely. You know, okay. and, and that's a very thing that's often unrecognized. Children oftentimes have much less than adults and oftentimes for much different reasons, but children can still have strokes. And so it's important if they're having these symptoms that they seek medical attention as soon as possible. So in, in other words, what you're saying is the first thing is that, that sort of weakness in the arm or, or, yeah. or n- neck or just the soreness, and you're saying get medical attention immediately. Yeah. If you're noticing that, you know, your child suddenly has weakness in arm, they can't move that arm. They, uh, that arm is weak and numb. That arm cannot, you know, control things properly. That should be something that would, work, you know, cause you to seek medical attention right away. Okay. Because you're, you're saying maybe it's this ACF or um, uh, maybe it's uh, AFM, excuse me, or maybe it, it could even be a stroke, which you know, I think most people Correct. think that's the last right. thing they would think that a child would get. Absolutely, and that you know, and that unfortunately is when we look at this particular cluster of symptoms. The first thing many of us in neurology think is, "Oh my gosh, it sounds like a stroke." But uh, in the case of when you done the medical evaluation, you find unfortunately it's not a stroke. This AFM is oftentimes in that differential of things that can look like stroke but are not stroke. Wow. And because I've read a, a number of accounts where, where children have been misdiagnosed. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, if they come to a line of hospital, you know, the, the diagnosis will be correct. But but is that a problem across the country where people are exhibiting these symptoms and this thing is so rare that, that doctors don't know what they're dealing with? You know, I, I can't speak for the rest of the country. What I can tell you is that a lot of times people will seek medical attention and they may have a presumed diagnosis of one thing, right? Right. Where we're working under this, um, this, this kind of a belief system, and then we do testing to confirm or disconfirm that. 
And most times it confirms our hunch, but sometimes it doesn't. And at the end of the day, a lot of times people still may not have that, that the, the diagnosis that, you know, makes us, that answers all the questions. And sure, so I'm certain there are a number of children out there who may have had this AFM, who may have been diagnosed with something else. Um, but what I, what I can tell you is that a lot of times folks may come in looking like one thing, they're told one thing, and then with the testing we do to confirm, we might find there's something else. That testing is important, though, because if it is something else, that's going to require a different treatment than we often initially plan on. Got it. And uh, we're chatting with Dr. Jesse Corey. He's a neurologist with Alina Health about this mysterious illness. It's a polio-like illness. Uh, Dr. Corey was saying it's actually sort of related to polio. It's called acute flaccid myelitis. At least six children in Minnesota have come down with it. It's also in in a number of other states. Um, how can you determine what it is? Is there a test for it or is there something where you can say definitely, aha, this is it? So right now, the things that have been shown to kind of, you know, help us make this diagnosis are, first of all, the presenting symptoms. Oftentimes, these folks come in, usually an arm, uh, one arm, not both, is the problem, followed by then either a leg or some problems with the nerves, the face, and head. The next, we typically will do what's called lumbar puncture, where we try to sample the fluid around the brain and spinal cord. And oftentimes, these folks have pretty normal-looking spinal fluid. They may have an elevation, about three to four times normal elevation of the white blood cells. Those are the, you know, the cells that help us fight infection in our blood. And so we, we kind of have this you know, picture of uh, you know, elevated white blood cells. We have this clinical picture. And then we'll do an MRI, typically. And we find out that on the MRI, we see changes in the spinal cord that localize just to those nerves, kind of in the center of the spinal cord that control our movements. And so when we see a you know, person who has this clinical picture where they've had this maybe a, you know, cold symptoms the week before with this arm that then went to a leg or to some cranial nerve uh, weakness and then has a spinal fluid, you know, it shows a little bit of elevation in white cells, an MRI that shows that, aha, you've got this inflammation in this part of the spinal cord that controls movement. This typically is kind of the cluster that says, okay, you're looking like this, you're looking like AFM right now. Okay. And that's what would make you then start looking towards, okay, we should treat AFM now as opposed to something else. Well, and, and how long are, are most of these children hospitalized for? It's very variable. In the studies that have been done looking at, you know, case series from various hospitals, most of these children, you know, are still requiring some medical help out to a year, like wow. I was saying before, that, you know, some of these kids, you know, at about at, at discharge, about 85% are still having some problems where they may have some weakness in a leg or a limb, but at a year's time, some of these kids still have problems with their extremities. So it can be, at least in the literature we have, it, it appears to be something that, that can be, you know, recovery can take longer than a year. And, and honestly, right now, nobody knows as far as will they ever fully recover. And is there... Um do you know, you said the first cases started exhibiting themselves in 2012, but I guess because there are so many more now, it's gotten more attention. But do we know, is it just the nature of viruses to evolve and and become new viruses? I mean, do you think this has been around for a long time or do you know how these kinds of things evolve? That's, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there much wiser in viruses than I am who could answer that. But what I what I can say is that we know this virus is still in those that family of viruses 
that polio came from. So my suspicion is that this is a class of viruses that may have a predilection for that part of the spinal cord that allows people to move. And so beyond that, though, as far as are there pressures that make this virus, you know, want to, you know, be more or less um, attacking of the that, that part of the spine, I really couldn't say. Right. And is what about the timeline for, is there work being done now to try and get a vaccine? Right now, from the literature I've reviewed here, there's been some work as far as looking at better ways to treat this, better ways to rehabilitate this. But unfortunately, a vaccine's hard to do right now because we don't have a full confirmation of what this what this is caused by. We have suspicion it's this enterovirus D68, but we can't confirm it this time because there have been a number of cases that have happened where they could find no trace in either the respiratory fluids or the spinal fluid of this, this virus existing. Right now, we're looking more and more at what's the best way to treat this virus. And unfortunately, a lot of our tried and true methods for other types of spinal cord inflammation don't seem to be as effective in this disease process. Wow. Okay. Well, it's scary stuff. And, and Dr. Corey, thank you so much for breaking it down. And uh, we certainly hope that there can be some advances soon. And yeah. I think your, your advice, if you have a child and that there's suddenly weakness in a limb, you need to get help right away. Mm-hmm. Because that 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 is Absolutely. the indication. It could be Absolutely. this, it could be something else, but it could be something very, yeah. very serious. Um, all right. Dr. Jesse Corey uh, with Alina Health, thank you so much, sir, for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, that is uh, really frightening stuff. Um, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Uh, looking ahead to our 7 o'clock hour. We've got a lot going on. I'll tell you about that. But first, we have to take a quick break. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. That's. All right, folks, uh, 52 degrees in the Twin Cities. Uh, feels a little chillier than that, I thought. But uh, anyway, uh, we've got a lot going on on our show here, a lot more than I actually expected to have going on. But uh, coming up, we are going to have Dean Phillips. He is the Democratic nominee in the 3rd Congressional District. Uh, the 3rd Congressional District, the incumbent is uh, Congressman Eric Paulson. And this is a really interesting race. It's one of the four races that was originally ranked as a toss-up race in Minnesota. And that's pretty unusual. There are 23 seats that are sort of up for grabs that could control who controls Congress. Obviously, the U.S. House of Representatives is under Republican control now. That could change with this midterm election. And there are 23 seats that both parties are looking at that could flip the House or, or keep the House in Republican hands. So we looked at that, uh, looking at that and just looking at Minnesota's perspective, Minnesota has four of them. In other words, of the eight congressional seats, there are four that have been ranked as potential toss-ups. The third congressional district though, and that's the western suburbs of Minneapolis, that district has actually been shifted by some of these analysts to leaning Democratic and in one of the polls uh, – it looks a couple of the polls have uh, Dean Phillips ahead. One of them by the New York Times has him ahead by, I believe, nine points. So that is a statistically significant lead. So we're going to talk to Dean Phillips uh, about that. Uh, and then we are also going to have Congressman Eric Paulson. He is going to call us at 735 uh, to respond to uh, some specific concerns that are being raised about one of his own ads 
about uh, Mr. Phillips' role at the Alina Health uh, Board of Health, um, or the, on being on the board of Alina Health. So anyway, a lot going on in our next hour. Keep it here, News Radio eight three zero WCCO. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 